Well, we come to our time this morning in Philippians chapter 4, so I invite you to turn there with me. And one of the great privileges that I have in my role here at Grace Community Church is to serve alongside the men on the ECHO board. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with that acronym, ECHO stands for Elders Council Handling Outreach. This is a committee of elders that oversees our close to 70 missionaries and their families. It's such a blessing for me to be so often reminded of the work that God is doing through our church for the sake of the gospel, literally around the world. And there have been a a number of young men whom I've trained alongside of at the Master's Seminary who are now just being sent out into the field or who are in the latter stages of preparation for being sent out. And as I've had the opportunity to speak with them about their plans to serve Christ on the mission field, to move their families halfway around the world, away from all that is familiar to them, away from all the comforts that they've grown accustomed to, and some of them to places where the the threat of persecution is still very real and potentially growing more real by the day, I've asked them about some of the challenges that they anticipate facing. And... Almost all of them, at least somewhere in that conversation, mention raising support on, very high on that list among those great challenges. And at first you think, you know, raising support? Like not the, not the lifestyle changes, not the culture shock, not the difficult labor of Christian ministry, not the threat of danger to your family? And of course, all of those things are concerns, but you know that's what they signed up for. They're, they know that that's what they're doing. But to ask the people of God to donate your resources to their ministry, that can be a sensitive issue. And I understand that. It would be a difficult thing. I always think, I, wouldn't, I don't know that I'd be a very good missionary. It would be a difficult thing for me to stand up here in a different fellowship groups and give what you have recognized and have, have experienced as the support presentations. I mean, think about it. On the one hand, you've got to communicate that the need is real and that you really need help. And on the other hand, you've got to communicate that you're not setting your heart on money, but are content with whatever the Lord gives you. But you've got to be careful even how you say that. If you stood up here and told everyone, well, listen, you know, I really do need the support to get to the minister into the Philippines, but, you know, it's okay if you don't want to give because I'm content with really with whatever the Lord gives me. You know, if you say that, people might get the impression that you don't really need or don't really want their support. And at the same time, you also can't get up here and lay a guilt trip on the people of God. You can't get up here and beg for money because you don't want to be manipulative. You want to minister with integrity. You have to walk this fine line of communicating a real need and expressing sincere thanks to the people of God for their partnership with you, and then doing that without conveying a sense of faithless desperation, as if you believed you'd be lost without their support. Well, it's precisely that fine line that Paul is walking in the concluding section of Philippians chapter 4. Now, the Apostle Paul understood that money was a difficult subject for a Christian preacher and missionary to address, not least because of the surplus of itinerant preachers in Paul's own day who were actually manipulative hucksters, people who sought to take advantage of gullible religious people. And so much was that the case that people grew to expect that from itinerant preachers. And it was precisely because the ancient world was littered with these kinds of charlatans that Paul often gave up his right to receive financial support for his labors in the gospel. He says, for example, in 1 Corinthians 9, 14, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. He says, but but I have used none of these things. And he goes on to say, and I'm I'm not saying this so you'll start paying me. In fact, I consider it my reward to preach the gospel without charge, verse 18, 1 Corinthians 9. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he tells the believers in that, in that young church in Thessalonica, we didn't come to you with a pretext for greed, he says. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim the gospel of God. And then when the Corinthians were being led astray by the false apostles 
who he says were enslaving them, who were devouring them, who were taking advantage of them, 2 Corinthians 11. Paul then contrasts himself with those teachers when he asks sarcastically, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? And then one more in Acts 20, as he gives his farewell address to the Ephesian elders at Miletus, he warns them that after his departure, savage wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. And because false teachers are always out for money, Paul distinguished himself from them by saying in Acts 20, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who are with me. I love that. He says, you know that these hands, my own hands, ministered to my needs. See, Paul knew that people viewed itinerant preachers as moochers who didn't want to get real jobs, so they just traveled from house to house and city to city, leeching off of the generosity of the naive. And so he took great care to be above reproach regarding this sensitive issue of giving and receiving. But here in Philippians 4, we find Paul in the middle of writing a thank you note to the Philippians, a thank you note for the financial gift that they had sent to him via Epaphroditus to minister to his need during his imprisonment in Rome. And in this thank you note, we observe him walking that fine line of communicating sincere thanks and gratefulness, but of being careful not to give the impression that his contentment is found in the money that they sent him. And so he tells them in verse 10 that he rejoiced greatly to receive their gift from Epaphroditus. But then the whole burden of the next three verses is to qualify that statement of his rejoicing lest they misunderstand him. He says in verse 11, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. In other words, he's saying, please don't misunderstand my enthusiasm. Yes, when I received your gift from Epaphroditus, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. But lest some accuse me of putting on a show in order to manipulate you into sending more money, You need to understand that my contentment runs much deeper than my financial stability. In fact, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And then he goes on. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. I've learned the secret of being hungry and being filled. I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. Now, do you see the tact displayed there? He says that their kindness and their generosity in giving of their resources has caused him to rejoice in the Lord greatly. But then he hastens to add that he didn't rejoice because his heart was set on a stable financial portfolio. He's not a money grubber. No, his joy, his satisfaction, his contentment are rooted in Christ. And Christ is sufficient to sustain his joy in all circumstances. So Martin Lloyd-Jones captures this thought helpfully. He writes, Paul's great concern that the Philippians, much as he loves them, should not imagine that he is finally dependent on them. So Paul's great concern is that the Philippians, as much as he loves them, shouldn't imagine that he's finally dependent upon them. That is his difficulty, how to thank them profusely without giving the impression that he's dependent upon them and how to thank them without detracting from the glory of God. And so this morning we come to the next part of Paul's thank you note to the Philippians, verses 14 to 17. And as we said last time, because of how dominated Paul was by the Lord Jesus Christ and by his gospel, even the way that he writes his thank you notes proves interesting and instructive for us. In verses 10 to 13, we found that beneath the surface of this thank you note, Paul had given us a theology of Christian contentment. That was the subject of our sermon last time. In our text this morning, we'll find that Paul gives us a theology of Christian giving. Theology of Christian giving. Let's read the passage together. Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 to 17. Just at the end of verse 13, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. 
You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. And as we unpack what the Lord has given us in that text, our approach this morning will be to first unfold the meaning of Paul's remarks to the Philippians across three units of thought. And then, trusting that we will have adequately understood that meaning, we'll draw several lines of applications that will instruct us in the matter of Christian giving. And so, first, we'll devote ourselves to understanding the meaning of the passage, which, as I just said, unfolds across three main units of thought. We have the commendation in verse 14. We have the the elaboration in verses 15 and 16. And finally, the qualification in verse 17. The commendation, elaboration, and qualification. First, the commendation. Look again at verse 14. Paul writes, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction." And that transitional word, nevertheless, serves to bring back the focus of the discussion to the main point that he began in verse 10, which, of course, is to thank them for their gift to him. And as we discussed then, after indicating that the the receipt of, of their gift had caused him great rejoicing, he digressed to explain the true nature of his contentment. And so now, by using the word nevertheless, he's signaling, while I had digressed, I'm going to resume my original thought. And so, nevertheless, brings us back. And it's not only a transition, but it also signals a correction to the Philippians' thinking. See, Paul is walking that fine line. You see, he doesn't want them to think that his sufficiency in Christ, his contentment in the person and provision of Jesus, means that he didn't need or didn't appreciate the Philippians' gift which we learn from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, that they gave out of their deep poverty, the text says. So if he would have ended the letter at verse 13, the Philippians might have drawn the conclusion that he was unappreciative or that their gift didn't matter since, hey, he'd learned to be content in whatever circumstances he faced. Think about it. If you had logged on to the Grace Church website and gone to the missionary page and set up your credit card information to regularly give to one of our missionary families. And if it was a sacrifice to you, if you were really straight and needed the money that you were going to sacrifice but decided to give it anyway, and then a couple of weeks later you got a thank you note from that missionary and it said, thanks so much for your gift. Of course, your support isn't the most important thing to us. We're content with any amount of money. And let's be honest, if, if you didn't give it, we know that the Lord would have provided some other way. See, all those things are true things, but that's not exactly what you want to say to somebody. You get that response and you think, oh, well, they didn't really need my support. This sacrifice that I made, well, and if they, di- if they did need it, they certainly didn't appreciate it all that much. And so Paul wants to avoid that potential misunderstanding, and so he commends them for their sacrifice. Yes, dear Philippians, make no mistake that I am content in Christ no matter my circumstances. Nevertheless, let me say explicitly, you have done well in giving me that sacrificial gift. And it's beautiful to observe the courtesy and the the tact with which Paul handles that sensitive situation. He has the pastoral sense to ensure that he doesn't come off as brusque and gruff and uncaring, but understands what it means to be tender with friends who might be sensitive to feeling underappreciated. One commentator wrote, Paul is trying to overcome any touch of ungraciousness. And oh, that we might learn something of the Apostle Paul's consideration and thoughtfulness in the way that we deal with our brothers and sisters. He commends them. You have done well. Elsewhere in the New Testament, this word for well is translated honorably in Hebrews 13, 18, and beautifully in 2 Corinthians eleven four. Paul saying, you have done an honorable, beautiful deed. It is 
noble. But more than that, he goes further in his commendation and also says that you've done well to share with me in my affliction. And the word to share in that, in that verse is the Greek word sum koinoneo. It means to have joint fellowship with. It wasn't just that they had sent Paul a few shekels so that he could pay his rent. No, in, in its truest sense, the Philippians' financial gift was a fellowshipping with Paul in his affliction. Their love for Paul had been so rooted and so established deep within their hearts that as they heard of his imprisonment in Philippi, they could see in their mind's eye the fatigue on his face. They could see the fabric wearing thin on his clothes. They could feel the the bruises on his wrist from the shackles being chained to to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. They could could feel the pain of his loneliness when he had so few visitors visiting him that were among the saints. And it was out of that real experiential empathy with his affliction that their desire to minister to his need was born. They enjoyed fellowship with him as they ministered to him in the midst of his affliction. But then, in the second place, notice not only his commendation for their giving, but also, secondly, the elaboration of that commendation. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. He says, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs." As much as the Philippians would have appreciated that Paul made his commendation for their gift explicit, they might have wondered if he was really being sincere. I mean, after all, how could their gift have been such a noble and honorable and beautiful act if he was content without it? And so Paul, in an attempt to guard against that thought, that misconception, he expands on his commendation of their present giving by reminding them that he's never forgotten the many occasions of their past giving. That's why he says, you yourselves also know. Why also? Because he's telling them that that he knows just as well as they do. He remembers their kindnesses to, to him. He holds close to his heart the long history of their partnership in the gospel expressed through their sacrificial giving from the beginning. And he speaks of the time at the first preaching of the gospel. That is, the time when the gospel had first come to them at Philippi, at least ten years earlier, when that precious church was born through Paul's missionary efforts. You see, from the very beginning of the Philippians' Christian life, the reality of their salvation had manifested itself in a genuine concern that they be used by God in strategic and instrumental ways for the proclamation and advance of the gospel. That's why Paul says in the opening prayer in Philippians chapter 1, verse 5, that he always thanks God for them in view of their participation in the gospel from the first day until now. See, they were in it from the beginning. And he specifies further. He's, he, he's speaking of a time at the, at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia. Now, this refers to the period of Paul's second missionary journey when he went from, from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea, all of those cities being in the region of Macedonia, and then into the region of Achaia where Corinth and Athens are. And we know from Acts chapters 17 and 18 that this was a a very tumultuous time in Paul's ministry. Turn to Acts 17 so that you can follow along generally as we sort of overview this part of Paul's missionary journey. Acts 17 and 18. So we learn from Acts 17 verse 2 that after Paul had left Philippi, he had spent just three weeks in Thessalonica before the people rioted. And so he was sent in a hurry down to Berea. You see that as it progresses, Acts 17, verses 1 to 9, he's in Thessalonica, and then 10 to 15, he's in Berea. And he had a good reception in Berea, but the Thessalonian Jews heard about that, 
And so they followed Paul down there and incited the crowds against him there as well, just as they had done in Thessalonica. And so at that point, Paul leaves Macedonia altogether. He goes on ahead of Silas and Timothy to Athens, where we learn that he was provoked in his spirit by all the idolatry that he saw there, verse 16. And after preaching to the philosophers on Mars Hill through the rest of chapter 17, he moved down into Corinth. And apparently things had been so dangerous in Corinth that the Lord Jesus himself appeared to Paul in a night vision in an attempt to encourage him. And he said, Paul, do not be afraid any longer. This is 18 verse 9. But go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And so if he needs to be told to not be afraid, to not be silent, and that no one would harm him, things were definitely getting rough. And so it was in this difficult time of ministry that Paul says the Philippians ministered to him financially. In fact, we have a record of that in Acts 18. If you look at verse 3, we learn that Paul supported himself by making tents. We know this. Paul was a tent maker. But then in verse 5, Luke says, But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Well, what's the implication? Paul could devote himself completely to the word without tent making because Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia. They must have brought money. And Macedonia, of course, again, is where Philippi was. And turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians about his time with them, when, which was described in Acts 18. So he's speaking to them much later about it, referring to that time that we just read about in Acts 18. And he says to them in verse 7, I preach the gospel of God to you without charge. And then in verse 9, he says, When I was present with you and was, when, was in need, I wasn't a burden to anyone. For when brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And so here again is the, a reference to financial help from Macedonia. And we know that this help didn't come from Thessalonica or Berea because in this epistle, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul says, No church but you, Philippians, shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but but you, nobody did. So these Philippians, they were unique in their support of the apostle. Even though, as I said before, 2 Corinthians 8 tells us that they were marked by deep poverty, the text says, and in a great ordeal of affliction, they were the only church who fellowshiped with Paul in the matter of giving and receiving. And then he goes even further and says in verse 16, for even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. And as we, we just saw, Thessalonica was Paul's very next stop after Philippi. Acts 17.2 says he'd only been in, in Thessalonica for three weeks. But less than three weeks after Paul had left them in Philippi, this infant church, out of the depths of their poverty, sent Paul money more than once, it says, for the sake of the gospel. That's amazing. So Paul not only praises them for the uniqueness of, the, of their giving, but also for the immediacy and the frequency of their giving. And so there can be no doubt in the Philippians' minds as to the sincerity of Paul's commendation of their recent gift to him in Rome. He had considered it a true participation with him in his affliction. And he tells them it's only the latest instance of a long history of earnest, sacrificial giving from you, my dear friends. And so we've seen the commendation of the Philippians for their present gift. We've seen the elaboration of that commendation, which focused on the history of the Philippians' consistent past giving. And now thirdly, we come to Paul's qualification of the whole matter in verse 17. Look at the text. He writes, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Now, in verse 10, he told the Philippians that he had great joy as a result of receiving their gift. But then immediately in verse 11, he qualified it. Not that I speak from want. 
Well, in the same way, he's just been commending the Philippians for their consistent history of giving, as well as for the noble act of their most recent gift, and he immediately qualifies his commendations with the same words. Not that. Not that. And here again, we observe Paul walking that tightrope of Christian tact and courtesy. He recognizes that the celebration of the commendation of the Philippians' giving could be beginning to sound effusive, could be beginning to sound excessive. And he had dealt with the false teacher's assaults on his character in attempts to discredit him long enough to know that they would hear that effusive praise of the Philippians' giving, they would accuse him of trying to manipulate them to give even further. They'd say, no, look at Paul go. Oh, Philippians, you're so noble for your giving. Oh, Philippians, you're so unique in your giving. Oh, Philippians, you're so consistent and frequent and immediate in your giving. Well, he, he's setting them up for an appeal, for another gift. He's just after the money. And Paul says nothing could be further from the truth. Not that I seek the gift itself. I'm not commending you for your giving so that I can prize some more shekels from your purse strings. No. Do you want to know what I'm seeking? Do you want to know why your gift makes me rejoice? Do you want to know why I commend you for a gift that I don't base my contentment on? I'm not after the gift itself. I'm after the profit which increases to your account. I'm not after the material profit in my account. I'm after what really moves me is the spiritual profit in your account. One commentator writes, Paul speaks in the language of an investments manager. That's the the kind of language he's using here in the Greek. He desires continuously increasing profits, daily compounding interest, and accumulating dividends for the Philippians' account, end quote. It's a great figure. And this is precisely what Paul had prayed for them in, in chapter 1, verse 11, that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He wants them to be filled with this fruit of righteousness. He wants spiritual blessing accruing to their account. It's the reason he said he wouldn't depart and be with Christ in chapter 1, verse 25, that, that he would continue on and remain with them, he says, for your progress and joy in the faith. I'm going to stay on earth so you can make progress in joy and in the faith. And as I seek your giving, I'm seeking that joy and that progress in your faith. Because when you give, there's a profit that accrues to your account. The principle is that giving to the work of God brings the reward and blessing of God. Paul rejoices in their gift and praises them for their giving because giving to the work of God brings the reward and blessing of God. And because Paul loves his Philippians, he wants that for them. And that principle that giving to God's work brings God's blessing is everywhere in Scripture. And the Proverbs especially are rich in this truth. Just take it down these references and hear, hear the emphasis. Proverbs eleven twenty five. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. Proverbs 19, 17. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. God will repay the generous man. God will not be outgiven. As Pastor John says, God will not remain in anyone's debt. You give to God by giving to his people he will not allow himself to be outgiven. Proverbs 22.9, he who is generous will be blessed. 28.27, he who gives to the poor will never want. And the Lord Jesus taught this same principle in Luke 6.38. He says, with utter simplicity, give and it will be given to you. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And perhaps the clearest exposition of that principle is in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I'd like you to turn there with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and many of you know the passage without even having to read it, but I want you to follow along with it in your own Bibles. 
2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, Paul says, He who sows sparingly will also, what? Reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And then he goes on. Follow with me at the end of verse 7. God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Do you see that principle at work there? As you are cheerfully giving to the work of God, God will reward you with abundant grace so that you will have an abundance, perhaps not for every nice purchase, but an abundance of grace for every good deed. And Paul says, I want that for you, Philippians. I want that abundant grace for you so that you will abound in every good deed. On that last day when we stand before our Lord, the one who judges each man's work impartially, I want a huge harvest of your righteousness. Oh, Philippians, I don't seek the gift itself. That's not where my joy is. No, you see, giving to the work of God brings the reward and blessing of God. And I seek the profit. I seek the compounding interest which accrues to your spiritual account. I long to see divine blessing multiplied in your lives. And I have to add here, just by way of a caution, that even though everything that I said, I I believe is from the Scripture and is absolutely true, this truth gets perverted in the most disgusting of ways by the health and wealth prosperity gospel who take to seek these general principles for the blessing of God upon faithful giving and try to turn that into a pretext for greed. Give so that God will give you money. But isn't it interesting how in 2 Corinthians 9, as I read it, I tried to emphasize as I read it, that as you give of your material resources, God will make grace abound to you so that you have an abundance of, of every good deed. He'll multiply, he says, your seed for sowing, not your seed for hoarding, not your seed for trading in for nice cars and big houses. And so people would use this truth to play on your emotions, to do the very thing that Paul is trying not to do, to wring money out of your wallet. And you need to be on guard against that. Don't be duped by the perversion of this truth, which, of course, sounds very much like the actual truth. Satan always masquerades as an angel of light. Don't be duped by what is almost biblical. Just as a word of caution. Well, isn't it amazing, then, the richness of a few sentences of a little thank you note that So many contemporary readers of Scripture would dismiss and pass over as irrelevant. Well, that was a letter between him and them for 2,000 years ago. What has it got to do with me? But oh, what an example that this text is that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. But is this simply a study of history, an exercise in analyzing someone's old mail? Not at all. As we turn to consider what application this text has to our own lives, beneath the surface of this thank you note, we discover at least four principles that prove instructive for us in the matter of Christian giving. Four principles that instruct us regarding Christian giving. And that first principle is that Christian giving is a fellowshipping with, a communion with, our brothers and sisters in Christ through the meeting of their needs. It is a fellowshipping or a communion with those whose needs we meet. Twice in this passage, Paul refers to the Philippians giving as sharing with him. And the word for share is the word koinonia, the Greek word for fellowship. 
And so in verse 14, he refers to the Philippians' giving as having joint fellowship, soon koinoneo, with him in his affliction. And then in verse 15, he calls it fellowshipping with him in the matter of giving and receiving. That's why in Philippians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul speaks of their participation, their koinonia, their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Because when we give to the ministry efforts of faithful ministers of the gospel, we ourselves are participating in that ministry of the gospel, even if we're not there on the front lines. You see, the Philippians couldn't take the gospel throughout all the Roman Empire the way Paul could. The Philippians couldn't preach the gospel to four different Roman soldiers of the Praetorian Guard each day the way Paul could since he was chained to one of them for six hours at a time. The Philippians couldn't stand trial before Felix and Festus and Agrippa and even before the emperor himself in order to make a case for Christianity the way Paul could. But because the Philippians gave of their financial resources to support Paul's needs as he carried out that unique apostolic ministry, Paul says you have just as much fellowship and partnership in that gospel ministry as I do. You are just as much a participant in those gospel endeavors as I am. And friends, you and I can't travel to Italy and Germany and to Russia and the Ukraine to South Africa and Malawi, to India and the Philippines, and preach the gospel and plant churches and start training centers to train national pastors to equip and lead their people, accurately preaching the word of God to their churches. We can't do that, but we can be just as much a participant in those ministries as our missionaries on the ground by faithfully and sacrificially supporting them with our financial resources. It's said that as the great missionary William Carey prepared to leave everything he'd ever known in England to take the gospel to the unknown world of India, he looked at his brothers in Christ who would eventually form the Baptist Missionary Society and said to them, well, I will go down if you hold the rope. I will go down if you hold the rope. And friends, as our missionaries dive as good soldiers into the trenches to take the gospel to places where we, limited to a small corner in Southern California, could never hope to take it, we hold the rope. And so we participate in that ministry. And it knits our hearts together with those missionaries such that there is a unique fellowship, a unique communion with them through the meeting of their needs. And I don't know about you, but that thought, that prospect, that reality delightfully compels me to think strategically about ways that I might be able to give of my resources to meet the needs of our missionaries. Not only does giving lead to fellowship and partnership in gospel ministry, there's a real sense in which true Christian giving is rooted in biblical fellowship. That's our second principle for Christian giving. Let me draw from this text. Paul says that the Philippians shared with him in his affliction through their gift. Now, he said before, it wasn't that they had just written a check to some nameless, faceless individual who they'd never met or or to some impersonal missions agency who would funnel their money to meet whatever need they saw fit. No, their giving was born out of a living, breathing relationship with Paul. They had laughed with him. They had cried with him. They had prayed with him. They had worshipped the Lord in song right alongside him. And so when they heard of his affliction, it was like they themselves were in prison. And it was out of that real experiential empathy with his affliction that their love for him overflowed in the meeting of his practical needs. Oh, how easy it is for us to write a check and be done with it. How easy it is to go to the website, pick a missionary, punch in our credit card number, set up a recurring monthly deduction, and never think twice about those dear men and women whom we claim to be supporting. I know, I've done it. But friends, that is not true Christian giving. 
Sure, you may have less money in your bank account and they may have more money in theirs, but when you're giving is cold and disconnected and not engaging your heart and not given prayerfully with the, the, the prayer that God will bless it as it goes. You don't make nearly the deposit you ought to make in that spiritual account that Paul talks about in verse 17. You don't make nearly the deposit you ought to make in that spiritual account when your heart isn't engaged. See, true Christian giving doesn't only lead to fellowship. It does but it's also rooted in fellowship. It's the overflow of real biblical empathy, of getting into someone else's skin and feeling their needs and feeling their pain so much that it can be said that you experience their affliction along with them, as Paul says. And that can only happen in the context of a real relationship. But where does that kind of relationship come from? That true brotherhood and sisterhood, that unique union and communion of heart and soul that makes your heart beat with another's heart, where does that come from? What creates the kind of bond that causes people to give sacrificially, even out of their deep poverty, when they don't receive anything tangible in return? And take a step back for a moment and remember who we're talking about here. These are not family members who were so bound to one another in love and committed to sacrificially giving, giving and serving one another. These aren't childhood friends who have known each other forever, and so there's this bond that's already there from years and years ago. These are the Philippians, okay? Before Paul met them, they were steeped in the philosophy and influence of pagan society. They were idolaters in their thinking, and they were immoral in their conduct. Acts chapter 16 even records that among the citizens of Philippi were were those who were demon-possessed. And then you had Saul of Tarsus, a Jew, a member of the strictest sect of legalistic Judaism that arrogantly trusted in his own holiness to earn him a place in heaven with God. Thirty years earlier, Paul would have regarded the Philippians as unclean Gentile dogs. And he would have spat at the mere mention of them. And the Philippians would have despised a Jewish man like Paul. They would have regarded him as a barbarian because he wasn't schooled in Greek philosophy. Although Paul happened to be schooled in Greek philosophy. And if you, if you forced these two groups, Jew and Gentile, to be, to be spending much time together with one another, they may have even wound up killing each other, surely to, come to, to have come to blows. But here, we read of the warmth, the affection, the fellowship, the communion, the empathy that overflows into the most sacrificial kind of giving, such that these Philippians, out of their deep poverty, could give of their already meager resources to meet the needs of the Apostle Paul while he's in prison. Where does that come from? It's certainly not natural to fallen men and women. Every experience that we've ever had teaches us that mankind is fundamentally and essentially self-centered. That we are preoccupied with serving our own ends, achieving our personal comforts according to our own desires and our own likes and our own dislikes. And that is especially plain when it comes to money and material resources. And that experience is only confirmed in the pages of Scripture, which says that each one of us is turned to his own way, Isaiah 53, 6. And that our natural condition is to live for ourselves, 2 Corinthians 5, 15. What in the world can take an arrogant, racist, self-centered Jew and a group of arrogant, racist, self-centered Gentiles and bind them together in love such that they're willing to suffer for one another. There's only one thing. That is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our third principle for Christian giving. Namely, that true Christian giving is driven by the gospel. Fitting with Philippians. That is the letter upon the gospel-driven life. 
that true Christian giving is driven by the gospel. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you hear God's word preached. And behold, in the Apostle Paul and the Philippians, such selfless, large-hearted generosity. And perhaps by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you felt the shame of your own selfishness. The shame of the the tight-fistedness of your own heart. And at the same time, as you're experiencing that shame, you're also, you also find yourself undeniably attracted to the beauty of Christ-like selflessness. And you've begun to long to know the kind of large-heartedness that so permeated the souls of the Philippians. And you ask yourself, how can I be that kind of person? I know that I'm not. I know that I want to be. How can I be freed from the tyranny of slavery to myself and be liberated to find my joy in the meeting of the needs of others, even those who I would consider to be my enemies. There's only one way, friend. It's through the gospel and through the gospel alone. You see, the Philippians had come to know that they were sinners. They had come to realize that there was a true God in heaven who was utterly holy and that they had broken his law, and they had failed to live up to the standard of perfect righteousness that is required for fellowship with him. They came face to face with the reality that they could do nothing to pay for their sins. They could do nothing to earn their acceptance with God. But through the preaching of the Apostle Paul, they also came to learn of God's own demonstration of his love for them. In that he had sent his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God himself become man. To live the perfect life that they were to live but couldn't live. To die the sacrificial death that they were required to die for their sins but they couldn't survive. They learned of the magnificent grace of God that offered them salvation as a free gift apart from any works. And that it was available to them by repentance and faith alone. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, they had come to know the grace of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for their sake he became poor so that they through his poverty might become rich. And having been given such a marvelous gift, they couldn't hesitate, the Philippians couldn't hesitate, but to bend that grace out towards others in the form of their generosity. They had been shown grace in the magnificent, unrepeatable generosity of Christ. And so being a recipient of such generosity, they desired to bend that grace out towards others. And elsewhere, Paul calls that gospel the gospel of the glory of Christ. Having been given new eyes, eyes to finally see The Philippians had beheld and they had been overwhelmed by the beauty of Christ revealed in the gospel. And the sight of that beauty became the great satisfaction of their souls so that they no longer sought their satisfaction in money and in possessions and in comforts. They became free from the bondage of self because of the wealth that they had in Christ And thus were free to give of themselves, free to give of themselves sacrificially to support Paul and his needs. And friend, 2,000 years later, that good news is unchanged. It's still the gospel of the glory of Christ. That same marvelous gift of salvation in the person of the Lord Jesus is available to you. Turn from your sin. Receive God's free gift through the outstretched arm of faith. Behold his beauty and be freed from self. I plead with you, you who are outside of Christ this morning, lay hold of Christ. And for those of us who have laid hold of Christ by faith and have beheld his beauty with regenerated eyes, We need to recognize that in the truest sense, that is the profit that Paul is talking about in verse 17. That is the reward and blessing of God that increases to their account. A greater and greater apprehension of the loveliness of Christ. 
That's our fourth principle for Christian giving. True Christian giving leads to biblical fellowship, is rooted in biblical fellowship, and is driven by the gospel of the glory of Christ. In the fourth place, we learn that true Christian giving is attained by pursuing God's promised blessings. It's attained by pursuing God's promised blessings. Now, I draw that principle from verse 17. Look at it with me again. Paul says, Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. He says, I'm not seeking after the financial gift you're giving to me. I'm I'm after the spiritual blessing that God will give to you as a reward for your sacrificial giving. That's what's got me so exercised. That's what's got me rejoicing. That's why I'm so enthusiastic about commending your giving. Because giving to the work of God, as we said before, brings the reward and blessing of God. And because I love you with all my heart, Philippians, I want more than anything for you to enjoy His blessings, for you to enjoy more of Him, for you to taste that sweetness, to behold that beauty. And so, if follow me here. If Paul is encouraging our giving by reminding us of promised blessings of God that are the reward of faithful giving, if that's what he's doing, then we too ought to be enticed to sacrificial giving by seeking our reward from the Father. If Paul is saying, what I want for you more than anything in your giving is to have increased profit to your account, and he seeks to motivate us to giving by promising us that, we ought to also go after the, the grace of giving by pursuing it, by believing in those promised rewards. Now, some people hear that, and they balk, and they say, no, we shouldn't seek the reward. That would be selfish. Yes, there will be a reward. God is gracious. But it's simply the natural result of obedience. We shouldn't set our heart on that. It's not to be our motivation. If it is, it ruins the whole thing. It corrupts it, turns it into an evil act. The thing is, though, the New Testament consistently and repeatedly calls us to sacrificial giving and all of obedience in general on the basis of the promised reward that it brings. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, Paul tells Timothy to instruct those who are rich not to fix their hope on their riches. Instead, he says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And then listen to the motivation in 1 Timothy six nineteen, Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Paul's saying, use your money in such a way that you'll be storing up for yourselves a treasure chest of heavenly reward. Use it in a way that will bring you the greatest and longest gain. In Luke 12, 32 through 34, Jesus comforts his disciples who are worried about the material things. Where am I going to sleep? Where am I going to get clothes? He says, do not be afraid, little flock. Fear not little flock. For your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Luke 12, 33, sell your possessions and give to charity. Here it is. Make yourselves money belts, which do not wear out. What are they, Paul? An unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Make for yourselves money belts, which never wear out. Store up for yourselves an unfailing treasure in heaven. These are commands. Jesus is commanding us to draw the strength that we need to be sacrificially generous by considering the stupendous nature of the reward of generosity. In Acts 20.35, Paul tells the Ephesian elders that they've got to do two things. He says he's never going to see them again. I'm sure that you're never going to see my face again. And they're weeping and they're leaving at Miletus. And he tells them you've got to do two things. One, help the weak. Acts 20, 34. Two, remember the words of our Lord Jesus, who said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, 
if we're not supposed to pursue sacrificial giving by seeking the promised reward, why wouldn't Paul just say, help the weak? Why would he tell us to remember, to keep in mind the promised blessing that awaits those who give? He wouldn't. Just one more. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, we were there before. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So the picture is of a farmer, a man who makes his living as a farmer, raising crops and selling them. His entire existence depends on harvesting a fertile crop and a large crop. So he goes to the market and he buys seed. And if, when he comes back to his fields, he starts to feel stingy. You know, I just spent all my money on this seed. You know, I want to keep it a little while. He takes just a little bit of that seed and sows sparingly, carefully placing it here and there on his field. Is he going to have a large harvest? No, not at all. But if he sows bountifully, taking fistfuls of seed and throwing it liberally, scattering it all over the soil, what's going to happen come harvest time? He's going to reap bountifully. Now, if we're not supposed to be enticed to sow bountifully by the promised reward of reaping bountifully, that is a ridiculous thing for the Apostle Paul to say. And then you have another promise in verse 8, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God has read it before, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. You think Paul's being exhaustive a little bit? All, all, every, every. See, if we're going to enjoy any sort of spiritual growth in the matter of true Christian giving, We can't cut ourselves off from the strongest motivation for abounding in generosity, namely the blessing and reward of greater experiences of God's grace and greater apprehensions of the glory of Christ. That's the grace that he is able to make abound to you. He desires that that grace of God would perform such an operation in our hearts so that we would have such an estimation of Christ, that Christ would appear so glorious in the eyes of our hearts, so satisfying to our spiritual taste buds, that we would gladly loosen the grip of our affections on our material resources and would lay them down in the service of the gospel. Be wooed. Be enticed to lavish giving by the promise of a great reward. And so as we go across the patio to worship and in the providential timing of God, you hear about opportunities to support our missionaries by the Faith Promise Program. Your elders want you to know it is not that we seek the gift itself. And in any other need we might present to you, it is never that we seek the gift itself. We know, and they more than I, but me too, we know and have benefited from the long history of the generosity of Grace Community Church and many of you here in Grace Life. We don't seek the gift itself. We seek the compounding interest of spiritual blessings that accrues to your account. So may you be enticed by the abundance of the reward, by the loveliness of Christ himself. May you be enticed to a radical selflessness and a sacrificial generosity that can only be explained by the gospel of Christ, now and forever. Let's pray. Oh, Father, may it be so. We say such things, may we be enticed. We call to you with that prayer. We don't just speak it into the air. We ask that you would do a supernatural work in the eyes of our hearts so that we would treasure Christ and be so satisfied with him that all other treasures look so paltry, that we can be free to lay down our our lives, our, our resources cheerfully in the service of your gospel. Teach us wisdom. Teach us what to give to and what we simply can't give to. Teach us how to know what opportunity is a need and, not, and just not that every opportunity is a need. 
but instruct us. Give us the wisdom that you promised to give when we ask without reproach. Open our hearts, enlarge our hearts, that we might make much of Christ by showing people that money is not our treasure, but that he is. May we use our money in such a way that makes it plain to people who are observing that money is not our God, but that Christ is, that you are. In this way, we would glorify you. In this way, we would bring honor to your name. Would you accomplish it for the sake of your name? Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.